loss helps us define our lives. By allowing our grief to matter, we discover our own strengths and embrace our authentic selves. Welcome to Good Grief with your host, Cheryl Jones. Get ready to be inspired, to create a deeper life, to make your time on Earth much more meaningful. Now, here is Cheryl Jones. Hello, I'm your host, Cheryl Jones, and I want to welcome you to Good Grief, where we talk each week about the transformations that can come from loss. Today, I'm welcoming Susan Thistle to talk about The Memory of All That, a book her mother, Mary McCracken, wrote about living with the Alzheimer's diagnosis of her husband, Cal. An international best-selling author, Mary McCracken earlier wrote four books about her work with autistic and learning disabled children. Circle of Children, Lovey, City Kid, and Turnabout Children. Her award-winning books have been published in 14 countries, and the first two were made into movies for television, starring the actress Jane Alexander. Her books have recently been republished, the first and last under new titles, The Lost Children and A Safe Place for Joey, and still attract a wide readership. Mary spent her last years with her husband, Cal, an inventor with 80 patents at Kendall at Hanover, a continuous care retirement community in Hanover, New Hampshire, where after his death, she focused on writing her final memoir about her great love, their great love for each other and how they triumphed over his disease. And you can find, find the book at marymccracken.com. Welcome, Susan. Thank you. So this is a slightly unusual uh, interview in the sense that it's your mom who experienced loss and transformation. Most primarily, that's what we'll be talking about today. I'm sure you've lived long enough to have had some examples of that in your own life. But we're going to focus most primarily on her final book and uh, the the path she and Cal took around Alzheimer's, two highly intelligent and adaptive people running up against something that they couldn't, in fact, um, think their way out of. Yes? Yes. Uh, that's, that's, that's so primary in my mind about, you know, illness in gen- general, but Alzheimer's more than a lot that you're just up against something you have no control over. Well, I actually would say that they did, they really found ways to handle the disease. Um, that, the response, not, the, not changing the thing, but responding to it, huh? Well, I think they also changed the experience of having the disease. But mm. from the beginning, you know, Cal's attitude, because he'd always been a fighter, was we'll beat Alzheimer's and we'll write a book about it. Um, you know, he was naively determined. Um, and both of them, they had always been very resourceful, very supportive of each other and very resourceful. They had a remarkable relationship and they took on Alzheimer's in the same way. Like, what can we do? You know, Cal wanting to defeat it, my mother trying to make it the best experience possible. And for her, it was just how to overcome each new problem that arose, I would say. Mm -hmm. Um, Well, that's the thing. Uh, Uh, You know, I lived with someone who was supposedly dying for almost a decade. So being in those situations, you know where they're going, but they're actually not the same as you go along. There's there's different things going on at every stage. And and so completely true of Alzheimer's, you know, there's and, and this is so clear in the book, the period where the person is disturbed by the fact that they can't remember because they still know they can't remember and, you know, on into the to times where that that memory itself is lost. Yes. Um, so it sounds as if they were uh, they and then she were good at figuring out what was needed at the moment and doing that. Yes, I, 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 I think they're I mean, your your talk is about grieving and I think of Alzheimer's having two kinds of grief attached to it. Um, sadly, one is that you're you're grieving all through the process because you're losing someone. That person is is slipping away from you. Yes, through the disease, and so you are both with them and loving them, but losing them. And then 
you also lose them completely in the end. But I want to, before talking about those two issues, I just want to go back and say that the very first experience of Alzheimer's is just the, the sort of shock or blow of learning that Cal had it, you know, that someone mm, has yes. it. It's a big shock for someone. And what do you do with that? And for, for my mother, it was, and for Cal, it was, well, what is this? They wanted to learn more about, they needed to learn more about the disease. I, I think that's just a natural part of the process. That Absolutely. That's the beginning. And then it moved into, you know, how to handle the different, well, actually, I would say the next piece of it or the pre-piece of it was Cal and my mother, and to a lesser extent, being in denial. He, he really denied initially that anything was wrong and did not want to go to a doctor. And I think that's a common first hurdle to get over. There's so much shame attached, I believe, to, uh, you know, we're so defined by intelligence in this particular culture. Um, related to education, but, you know, just native intelligence too. And of course, memory doesn't immediately take away intelligence, but if you can't accept that you have to adapt, then it leads to a lot of other problems because you can't do the things that will help. But it sounds as if they got through that, or at least your mother did. Um, I. What I would say here, um, I'd say two things. One is, you know, she, as, as you nicely said, she had written earlier books about working with autistic and learning disabled children. And especially with the autistic children, there was a similar feeling that there should be no shame attached to this disease. That was part mm. of or, or, or a condition. And sure. she felt that very strongly about Alzheimer's and Cal having Alzheimer's and that he should still be accepted as, as a, a, a part of us, you know, a part of our community. A and, person. <laughs> yes, I was going to say a person. And, yeah. <laughs> yes. Right. And that acceptance, I think that's what her book does, you know, is here is a brilliant man, an inventor, you know, um, who start, went to Princeton at age 16, who had to go through this process. And they were very good at not being ashamed. You know, his daughter was good at helping with that also. And I think that that's an important first step once the diagnosis is made is to have the person with the disease feel okay, you know, not mm -hmm. ashamed that they have it. I loved how he came to tell uh, even people he just met, um, just so you know, I have a touch of Alzheimer's. Right, right. right. <laughs> Such a brilliant sentence. Yeah, I have a little bit of Alzheimer's, right. And that was partly <laughs> thanks to, I mean, um, as I said, he really was in denial at first, but after he accepted the diagnosis, his daughter, who um, is a doctor, said he really should tell the family, even though the whole family knew by that point in time. And so... On his birthday, he stood up and said to his family, you know, I have something to tell you. I have a little bit of Alzheimer's. And they all, you know, were supportive and cheered him and said, our memory's going to. And that helped him a lot, you know. Well, that's an anti-shame tactic I know from being a therapist. What you say in the light, what you share, it kind of withers a bit. It, it, doesn't, it, it doesn't maintain its strength. When you're hiding it, it's stronger. Oh, I see. Huh. Uh, I think of it like mushrooms, you know, they, they grow well in the dank. <laughs> That's interesting. Um, and I think, you know, well, I don't know whether to, you guide me. I don't know whether to talk more about that acceptance of his having Alzheimer's or about this, the problem solving approach that is so much a part of the book. You, you know, uh, both over the course of this hour, but I wonder if you could share a little bit of the book at this moment, because uh, this first section uh, that we're going to hear um, really is is about um, their life together. And I feel, you know, I used to think with my my wife when she was sick and dying, how do people do this when they don't have a good relationship? You know, yeah. I mean, I wanted to do everything I could do for her because yeah. I just so deeply loved her. Right. And, you know, um, I would have done anything that I could do uh, to make to make 
life better, right? Yes. I, I don't know how people do it when they don't have that. I've witnessed it, but I still don't know how people do it, right? Yes. So I would love to just share a little bit of their relationship. I um, will. Because- um, although actually kind of th- this is, I can tell you about the relationship. The little piece, the piece I've chosen is more the first piece I chose, um, how they, how Cal finally was able to admit that something was wrong. So it's kind of good in both ways, because I do think their relationship shows in this passage. That's I, I do want to say about. before I read it that I think that you've really seen the heart of the book <laughs> in that um, it really is, you know, loving someone more, you know, to the when they go through this, this law, you know, you know that they're going to deteriorate and be lost, but the response is to love more. I think. Oh, absolutely. I really resonate with that. Yeah. So, and, and I always, I have to say that I very much admire, they had one person said the kind of relationship we all dream of having, they were so in love with each other and so supportive of each other and helped each other so much. So I'll start with this first piece from the book. Uh, So this is my mother. Uh, who wrote this. I had just turned 43 when I married Cal McCracken, a second marriage for us both, and began the most wonderful stretch of my life. For the first 25 years we were together, the world just shone. So many good things happened. Cal invented, I wrote and published, we worked, walked in a haze of happiness. Then slowly at first, our life together, together began to change. In the beginning, it was just little things. Cal had increasing trouble finding his keys and glasses, but we all do, I thought. He had a few odd moments, but these also didn't seem too serious. One evening, I heard his car arrive in the garage, but Cal didn't appear. I went to investigate. I found him still standing outside the door into the kitchen, his keys in his hand. He shook his head. I can't figure out which one unlocks it, he said. We painted the key red with some old nail polish of mine, and he never had trouble with this again. Looking back, I can see there had been other hints I hadn't noticed, or maybe deliberately ignored. Others were noticing, though, and they urged me to get Cal to a neurologist. Cal resisted fiercely, saying he did not need to see a doctor. But inside, he must have known something was wrong, and he finally found the words to talk about it. We were up in our little house in the country. This is where I wrote and Cal sketched and sorted out his ideas for new inventions. I was sitting on the sofa reading. Cal was lying stretched out with his head in my lap, half dozing. Then he began to talk so quietly at first, I could hardly hear him. I'm scared, he said. I don't think I've ever been scared in my life, but I am now. Something's wrong. I forget all kinds of things, sometimes even where I am. I don't know what's happening to me. Cal sat up, sat up, and I turned to hold him close and clasped his hands in mine. We're getting older, Cal, I said gently. We'll be okay. We have each other, and together we can handle anything. You know, this together we can handle anything Uh, is both true and incomplete in the sense that I feel your mother did a a better than average job of realizing that it actually wasn't going to serve them for her to try to take care of everything. Yes, that's that's a very good point. Um, I'm I'm going to, if I were to pass on my, my words of wisdom from going watching them go through this. There are two things. Number one, she was very resourceful and Cal himself was determined to do what he could about the disease. But number two, she realized that she couldn't, she had to look for others to help her, that she couldn't do it all on her own. And I think that's a really important point about this disease. And I resonate with that too, because, uh, at the beginning of my wife's illness, I would have tried to do it all myself. I don't know what we call that, martyr complex or training or pride or who knows, but um, my wife said absolutely not because no one else can be my beloved. They can they can do the dishes, but they can't be my partner. Uh-huh. Uh, 
And I, I think the same could be said for your, your mother and, and Cal, that they continued to be um, together in it uh, because your mom certainly got exhausted, but not so exhausted that she just petered out, right? She stayed connected, which is hard with a person who is, is progressively disconnecting. Yes. Um, well, I would say to that that um, towards, so there are stages to Alzheimer's and it was, she was able to do a lot of problem solving. Although when you read the book, you see that as you pointed out, a lot of the problem solving was who can help me? Who can I find here that can help me understand this piece or help me deal with this piece? Um, and, um, but what I'm going to say is that towards the end, towards the last year and a half or two years, she was exhausted. And, and that was a point where, where she, Cal had to go into a memory care unit. She had to accept that. That's another sort of step in this process of, of grieving, really, was mm-hmm. having to give him up in that. I was so moved by that first night she slept by herself, yeah. for, for instance. Yeah, I, can, I can feel that in my body. <laughs> <laughs> You know, for me, that was after my wife died. But, um, you know, just that it feels so wrong at first. Um, Um, But I do think that was a very wise choice because it did allow her to not be stretched so thin that she couldn't really be there emotionally. Yes. Yes. I think that's really important. Um, I just before we move to that you know, losing Cal to the memory care unit, I just want to go back and give an example of her being resourceful. So, you know, you have to balance these two things of, of figuring out how to solve a problem and yet realizing you can't do it all on your own. And yes. a small example is that as Cal was initially, he was in the first few years of Alzheimer's, he began to get confused about which clothing to put on where. He'd, he'd show up with a shirt on on top of a sweater. And so, for example, and what my mother did, thought to do was to make a pile of clothes on the bed in the right order for him to put them on, you know, his, his underwear and t-shirt and then his shirt and then his pants and then his sweater. And then she'd put a pile of her clothes on her side of the bed. So it would look like this is what people do. They have a pile of clothes and that helps, <laughs> helps now get dressed. And that does that that folds back to this idea of reducing shame, right? Uh, because it's just a strategy. There's no um, you should be able to put on your clothes without that. There's no sense that there, anything is amiss. It's just um, we're doing this to make things easier. Uh, I'm thinking of a friend of mine who who died of Alzheimer's, um, but for several years before we were in a group together. And he just took to having a notepad and he would write down everything because by the time the ne- the last person was done talking and he could say something, he would have forgotten what he had wanted to say, right? So yeah. that was a very intelligent strategy. Uh-huh. And his intelligence compensated for his memory loss for a long time. Uh-huh. And uh, it seems like both... Cal and your mom were pretty good at those kinds of adaptive strategies, uh, Mm -hmm. for sure, for sure. We're going to take a break and then we'll come back and and talk more about that. Listeners, you can find links to my website and social media at the Good Grief page at Voice America. Like me on Facebook, follow me on Twitter. I'm on Instagram, the whole works. And to find Mary McCracken's work, go to marymccracken.com and it's M-A-C-C-R-A-C-K-E-N, mccracken.com. Be back soon. Be sure to like the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel on Facebook. You'll find great health tips from the experts. Find out more about your favorite shows and talk back to our team. Search Voice America Health or click the like button under the player today. This is Good Grief host Cheryl Jones. Whether you're in grief, crisis, deep loss, or transition, working with the right therapist can move you forward like nothing else. That's why I'm happy to be sponsoring BetterHelp. Their user-friendly platform connects you with a therapist uniquely suited to support you. If you want to know more, follow the link on my host page or go to BetterHelp.com. 
betterhelp.com slash good grief. That's betterhelp.com slash good grief and receive a 10% discount for the first month. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. Resiliency is the human capacity to lean into individual and collective strengths with compassion and grit when faced with the challenges of lived experience. Join host Elaine miller Karras for Resiliency Within, a program of hope and healing designed to inspire you to integrate wellness into your life, your family, and your community. In challenging times, you'll want to tune in every week. Resiliency Within can be heard every Monday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on The Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. This is your host, Cheryl Jones, and I've been talking with Susan Thistle about her mother's book, The Memory of All That. And before the break, Susan, we were just talking about the really masterful ways that the two of them adapted. You you brought up the uh, the clothing, which real I'm going to keep that one <laughs> because <laughs> that uh, I'm always you know collecting little little tools like that for people um, because if you if you've ever uh, you know interacted with which I do in my work some. Uh, with memory loss, um, it's like in reinventing the wheel for people. Mm. You know, there's not. That's what I appreciate about your your mother's book is that it it gives people a head start, really, mm. on on um, how to how to honestly assess what's going on and figure out the best you can make of it. Yes. Yes. And I, as I said at the start of this, I was saying that looking back at what they went through, it was it surprised me to realize that there was really a period of happiness for Cal um, in the first, say, first or middle stage of Alzheimer's. Um, and what that came from was, uh, you know, he'd already come to terms with having Alzheimer's himself and saying to people, I have a little bit of Alzheimer's. But... He just loved it when other people were friendly and accepted him and treated him like everyone else. And he loved being part of a group, even if he couldn't say much. He just liked being there and being accepted as part of the group. And the other thing he enjoyed was he was a very good tennis player, and he kept that skill for a very long time. And so That's was, amazing, isn't it? That's because no, it was body memory, huh? Exactly. And um, so he, could, he was the best player. And he was always a very kind man who never, you know, beat someone badly. So everyone loved playing with him. So that gave him a, whole, a great deal of pleasure, I think. And, and my mother and Cal found things to do together that they enjoyed, like simply walking beside a river, sitting beside the river. Um, so finding what you can still enjoy and do together and what the person with Alzheimer's can still enjoy is, is really important. Um, Absolutely. And one one way I think that that's powerful, but tell me if you think this connects with your experience of them, is that we are not all what we think. We're not all memory. We're not all intelligence. Mm. Uh, we're also experiential beings. And um, I've had many people that are losing memory say, I don't feel like myself. Mm-hmm. But if they're doing something experiential, 
that problem disappears entirely. That's interesting. Huh? Um, So that, you know, for instance, one of my clients got a dog Mm -hmm. and, you know, being with the dog is pure bliss because (laughs) it doesn't, all it requires is holding onto the leash, right? Um, So I wonder if that's part of it, that, that when you get a way to experience yourself as fully alive, you know. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. It's just making me remember that, um, and I want to say something more about this retirement community, but um, they t- when they were up there, it was a long winter and they took up cross-country skiing, which Cal was very good at. <laughs> you know, he could learn to do cross-country skiing and enjoyed doing it, that sort of experiential way of being. He knew how to use his body and the body, I, I, people have often said about Alzheimer's, you know, people keep their physical abilities for a really, really long time. Alzheimer's doesn't take them away, which can be bad news sometimes if you're. Well, I mean, the standard thing you have to to bring up um, is driving. You know, he had to give up driving, um, I'd say, midway through Alzheimer's. You know, my friend did, too. And what was interesting is, of course, it was a very, um, I don't know, therapy. There were lots of therapists in the family and all of this. And so they talked it through over and over and over again. But he couldn't remember that they'd done that. (laughs) So so he kept saying they took away my car. And that was painful because I knew that they had had hours of discussion uh-huh. about it, but he couldn't uh-huh. retain that. It was pretty uh-huh. funny, but it was a relief to everybody when, yeah. when when they finally did take away the car because it wasn't safe. Yeah, I think that's a big hurdle. Um, what I what I wanted to say about um, this uh, continuous care retirement community is that my parents were very fortunate in being able to go there. Um, and some people also will be able to do that or, or Alzheimer's will strike when they're already in that setting. But I want to pull out of it what can be done anywhere. I mean, I find myself thinking, well, would I, with my partner, move to a retirement community? And I'm not sure it's necessary. Again, I'd stress that for Cal, Cal having the social interaction was what was important. And for my mother, um, having the social interaction, having friends that could help her. And I think there are ways to create those in your community. Um, For instance, there's an organization, I think it's national, but there's one locally here where people pay membership and they're in all different age categories. And the the idea is that uh, when you're young, you help. And when you're older, you get help. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. Yeah. So it's kind of building a community over time that, that cares for, Uh, itself. Um, But all of it involves friends cannot, especially if you're in an older age group, you know, our friends helped us so, 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 so much, but now all my friends are old. (laughs) You know, it's a little more complicated, honestly. (laughs) Yes. And that's why I think, yes, I guess what we need to do is broaden our communities in in the larger world as much as, as we can. Um, and I, I guess what I want to stress is, is for people not to get isolated, to look for ways in their community to, to, to still be involved with other people and with activities, either together or um, at some point, um, a daycare program will work well for the person who has Alzheimer's. And for on my mother's side, um, an um, Alzheimer's support group really helped her. And the social worker leading it also met with my mother individually, and that really helped her. That that was an experience she had several times. Yeah, I I was really glad she um, had a good mental health professional working with her because we can sometimes, you know, it it can be a little bit of a head start in some of the emotional parts and also the strategies. If you work with people that have faced these issues before, you have some tricks, right? (laughs) Yeah, little tiny tricks. Um, Little bitty tricks. Yeah, for sure. Um, But but there is, um, you know, the progress meetings that they that that your mom was a part of for Cal. Um, Boy, it's really hard to interact with a medical system about someone you feel. And I know this from my wife's cancer about um, about someone you feel so um, 
emotionally tied to. It can feel a little cold. Yes, but I think in this instance, it was a good lesson for the healthcare community that she was meeting with. So just to give listeners the background here, we're now sort of progressing to the last couple of years of Cal's Alzheimer's. And um, at the end of that stage, she did have to go down to a memory care unit. And um, the, the, this, the people working with him, the doctors and nurses and nurses aides would hold these progress meetings. And my mother at this point, it's that form of grieving over Alzheimer's that I mentioned in the beginning as you're losing the person, you know. One piece at a time, kind of. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. And for her, it was trying to hold on to whatever of Cal was left, you know, anything they could still do together, any way they could still interact together. And to go to these meetings and have the people go around the room and say, he can't put on his shoes anymore. He can't do this anymore, you know. She Mm -hmm. didn't want to hear what he couldn't do. She wanted to hear... He can still do this. He can still do that, which I think was an okay comment. Um, yeah, I think that's that's really good for any medical professional to not come entirely from the from the uh, manifestation of the illness, whatever it is. Yeah, um, I, because there's still a person there. Yeah, and I have to say, really. What got one of the big things that got her through was having very good doctors and social workers and nurses that helped. So, and re- and resources because I do notice um, with people I encounter who are having these exact same issues but have no finances, it's a whole different situation. Well, but there are things. That's what I'm saying about trying pulling out what works and then finding ways to make that work. For example, if you're on Medicaid, you can be funded to have um, a companion, a home health aid help. Um, yeah, that's that's slowly improving for for anyone with any kind of illness, actually. Yes. Um, because, yes. you know, yes. just the, just the um, straight on physical care is a big job that at exactly. some point the person can't do for themselves anymore. Would you share a little more uh, from the book? And this is, this is quite further along. I think it, I think this uh, section is from when he was in the memory care unit. Yes. yes. And, and so it's, you know, the negative side was what I just talked about the progress meetings and, and um, also the realizing that she really needed a companion to be with Cal. That's another story. But what I want to say here is that even at this late stage of Alzheimer's, they still had good times together. They still had ways to enjoy being with each other. And I'm going to start with their anniversary. (laughs) And and it's a little Mm. sad at the start. Our 30th anniversary, 30 years, where have they gone? How did we end up like this? Outside, rain drizzles down and the sky is a sullen gray. Now, I'm going to interrupt to say my mother has been resolutely dealing with everything in Alzheimer's all the way through even in her journals. But here she writes, an overwhelming sadness settles around me. This is a low point for her. Mm -hmm. 30 years ago, we were in love. We'd gotten a late start, but now that we'd begun, nothing could stop us, we thought. We were together and that was all that mattered. Tears stand in my eyes. I hate, hate Alzheimer's, that big black serpent that slithered into our lives and smothered our joy. The clock says 10 a.m., This is the time I go to be with Cal, but not today. I can't go today. But by afternoon, I miss Cal. I scold myself. Who are you to feel sorry for yourself when you've had a long, deep love affair of 30 years and more? I take a shower, wash my hair, put on my blue linen suit, and go down to see Cal. He's sitting in a chair in the living room in his memory care unit. I stand in front of him. Guess what, Cal, I say. Today is our anniversary. We've been married 30 years. Cal jumps up, the fastest I've seen him move in ages, wraps his arms around me and says, that's great news. I laugh out loud. Where had he found those words? All right, I say, let's go celebrate. I don't know exactly what Cal thinks is happening, but he is very happy, which is all I care about. We drive to a nearby cafe, 
find a table for two, and I order a double scoop of vanilla ice cream with chocolate sauce, Cal's favorite, and two spoons. I raise a spoonful of ice cream and toast to many more. Cal reaches across the table and taps his spoon against mine. Somehow, regardless of the pain, as long as we're together, there are always scraps of joy. For sure. <laughs> for sure, for sure. For sure. I'm, th- I'm thinking about my friend, the wife of, of um, the man I was describing, who took the notes. Mm-hmm. And uh, at one point, we were, this group was a place where people really talked deeply about their experiences. And she was mm-hmm. talking about the experience of being with him. He was there. Mm-hmm. Um, they were open about everything. And she said, I really miss being tracked, which has stuck in my mind, you know, your mom had to track the anniversary all by herself. Yes. Uh-huh. Uh, and, and there were so many daily examples of things that they would have remembered together or uh, sought to do together, all these things that then she became the driver of, my friend. And yeah. I And I heard that in the book, too. That's a big, big transition, and it's worth feeling bad about you know, it's it's a loss. It's yeah. it's a pure loss there. But she was uh, a resilient type. She didn't stay there. Yes, yes. So that you know, I I I am a great believer in just taking note of what's actually happening. And if it makes you sad, it makes you sad, right? Yeah. <laughs> and then it, oh, sadness. Okay, it tends to move on if 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 we don't hold on to it or try to get out of it. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. Can I, can I ask you just briefly before it's time for another break, what it was like for all of you around them to observe both, to observe the decline and to observe the steadfastness of their love for each other. Hmm. You know, Cal stayed Cal. It's like the essence of Cal was still there for me. Um, uh, that's and, very fortunate, <laughs> isn't well, it? Well, I, I think it's something, it's what you were saying, we're more than our thinking, you know, or we're more than our memory. Um, so from the beginning, there was a deep sorrow that this had happened to him, but they still had their loving relationship and it was a pleasure to be around them. Um, so I, I don't know, you know, I, I enjoy being with them. What, what uh, I may be projecting this onto the situation a bit, but um, people really liked being around us because we were entirely op- an open book at some point. You know, uh-huh. we, just, we just were fully present at some point. And that almost became more as time went on because we were very, very focused on being just right there and being in our joy and living our lives hmm. while being realistic about whatever it was that was happening. Uh-huh. What's uh-huh. happening isn't where you're living experientially necessarily. No, I think it's kind of like when we talked about not having it be a situation of shame, you know, Alzheimer's or autism or whatever. There's also accepting that that people are going to fade away that that's part of our lives or the end of our lives and and uh-huh that that's not that's not tragedy in other words yeah it's just it happened it's just something that happens but i don't know i don't know that's complicated i pulled out a, a quote of your mother's that i think connects with this um where she says it, we didn't beat alzheimer's I guess you were quoting her here, but it didn't win either. We stayed close and loving through all the years and had sweet times until the end. Them separate from Alzheimer's as something to beat or not beat. um, They just, they continued to be them. Yes, yes. And I think they had a sense that each of them gave it their best. You know, that's why she said Alzheimer's didn't beat us, you know. Um, I feel that has uh, a really profound, her book is not about grief particularly in the sense that it is ongoingly, but not 
so much her grief after his death, but I have to think that helps. I know it helped me a lot. That what helps? That that we had loved well. Yes. And continued to love well, no matter what was happening. Yes. Uh, you know, that that couldn't take the relationship away. Yes. It, it took the body away for sure, <laughs> obviously. Yeah. But it didn't it didn't break us. Mm hmm. Right. I think I hear that in their relationship as well. Yes, I, I would agree with you there. It's time for our second break now. Listeners, you can go to my website, weatheringrief.com or the Good Grief host page. And to find Mary McCracken's work, go to Mary McCracken, M-A-C-C-R-A-C-K-E-N.com. Back soon. This is Good Grief host Cheryl Jones. Whether you're in grief, crisis, deep loss, or transition, working with the right therapist can move you forward like nothing else. That's why I'm happy to be sponsoring BetterHelp. Their user-friendly platform connects you with a therapist uniquely suited to support you. If you want to know more, follow the link on my host page or go to betterhelp.com slash goodgrief. That's betterhelp.com dot com slash good grief and receive a 10% discount for the first month. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back to Good Grief. I've been talking with Susan Thistle about her mother's book, The Memory of All That. And Susan, what's sta- there are a few things really standing out to me. Uh, one is that once uh, your mother and Cal accepted that it was indeed true, that there was a thing to respond to, their adaptive capacities really kicked in and, and held them in great stead the whole way. For instance, they moved to a place where they would get help sooner than later. Many people fight that. Um, they got good uh, psychological support. They uh, let people help. They counted on all of you, you know, just in every way. And then uh, I know you would you wanted to share uh, another story or two about just some of the amazing problem solving that they engaged in. Do you want to tell the tennis ball story? (laughs) (laughs) I can do that. So this is when Cal had, my mother had to let Cal go down to the memory care unit. And and as we've said, that was very hard. Um, And initially Cal, he didn't protest about being there, but he didn't come out of his room. And that made my mother quite sad as happened at different intervals in this disease. But then she thought, what can I do? What can I do? and took a tennis ball down. As I've said, he was a very good tennis player. She didn't know why she took it down there, but when she got in his room, she ended up pulling it out and saying, wanna play catch and throwing it at him. And they tried playing catch in the room and the ball got, went under the bed and so on. So they moved out into the, the living room area and started throwing it back and forth and Cal's enjoying it. And then a nurse comes along and Cal throws it to her and then she throws it <laughs> and then he throws it to a nurse's aide and then he's throwing it under his legs or catching it in his left hand. And so he just really had a great time interacting with the, um, the healthcare staff there in the memory care unit and came out of his room cheerfully um, after that experience. So I think it's a great, great example of coming up with being resourceful in the face of what of a difficult disease. I think it's also an example of how uh, losing memory does not um, cause us to lose the desire for human interaction. Yes, that's a really good point. And to me, it seems as if it used to be that once somebody was at an advanced stage of memory loss, they were sort of treated as if they were dead. And and now in my, you know, warehouse, that's, that's where that word came from. And uh, it's changing a bit, which I'm glad to be able to say, 
to where um, there people in the field are looking for ways to keep engaging. Yes, good. Um, you know, music, for instance, yeah. for many people just connects with another part of the brain. Uh, the tennis ball story, very good example. Uh, I, I can't remember her name, but I was watching a, um, a talk about someone in that field who was talking about how sometimes you have to co- uncover the hidden message huh. in the person. They are saying something, uh-huh. but it's, it's um, coded, you know, and uh-huh. she, she gave some examples of how she decodes uh, Alzheimer's talk. But that's, uh-huh. again, if, if someone's trying to communicate and no one listens, that's right. frustrating. And then they, they act out, right? Because they also are, don't have all the wherewithal to keep it in. So all those are ways to keep engaged with the humanity of the person. Yes? Yes, yes I would agree. I would say that finding a companion becomes very helpful in whatever way you can do it. And in my mother's situation, Cal did get so, he did become too, she could not take care of him by herself. She really couldn't. And she needed time to herself. And the first woman she got just didn't work. She would come in and say, and how are we today? And Cal would just get up and go into the bedroom and shut the door. But no kidding. <laughs> my mother, um, again, tried to figure out, she actually came up with the idea of posting a notice at a medical school and then um, asking if any med students wanted to work. And she described Cal. And this turned up the girlfriend of, a, of seven uh, med students said, yes, they wanted to do this. And then she ended up choosing a young woman that was related uh, in a relationship with one of the med students and Cal just adored her. So it solved the companionship issue is what I'm trying to say. And it also solved the, the caregiver burnout issue because yeah. I, yeah. I don't know if you know, we're mostly focusing on how they adapted to Alzheimer's, but the fact is caregivers are twice as likely to get depressed as the person because, yes. because of not, yes. uh, not having enough care for themselves. Exactly. And that's why you, you can't do it all yourself. You have to figure out who can help you and you have to plan ahead. So you're not at a point of exhaustion when you have to move to the next stage, which was him going to the memory care unit. And then my mother beginning to question the quality of his life, really, you know, taking her to other decisions she had to make. I'd like to talk about that because uh, I, uh, I, I don't know why my friends are coming to mind today, but <laughs> there you go. I have a friend whose mother lived to be 111. Oh, my. I believe it or not. But the last couple of years, she was really, really compromised. And she had not said, don't give me antibiotics at the end or, you know, any of that. And they kept feeling too guilty to stop uh-huh. treating stuff. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it was painful, mm-hmm. right? It was very painful. And, um, you know, the fact is, you're not, if, well, you tell the story of them and then... <laughs> <laughs> if there's well, any uh, said, any need, I'll, I'll express an opinion about it. <laughs> well, again, there's much more to the book than what I'm telling, but she does begin to question the quality of Cal's life. And the doctors had said, if he gets pneumonia, it's okay if you don't give him antibiotics. And, and she would have always said no. And then she finds herself wondering, you know, um, what to do. And she does get a phone call one early one morning from the doctor saying Cal has pneumonia and she has to make that decision and goes for a walk. It's so hard to let go of someone you love. I mean, it's part of the, the letting go of the grief. And she says to herself, I know what I want. I want to keep Cal with me as long as I possibly can. But then a voice in her head says, but what would Cal want? Do you think Cal likes living like this? And by this point she has to say, no, you know, I don't think he does. Now, I just have to tell you that even though she decides not to give him antibiotics, you don't make a decision. Other twists and turns occur occur in the book. Yes, I'm well aware having read it, (laughs) but I think it's an important point. And, you know, there are lots of complex decisions now because 
of advances in medicine. Um, the fact is that is what you, you, used to be the thing that would take people out of that misery. It would be pneumonia. Uh-huh. Oh, and, uh-huh. Yeah, but because that's treatable, it's now a tougher decision unless we actively let people know what we want. So yeah. I'm putting in a I'm putting in a word for that. Yeah. Would you Would you um, read one more segment? Just uh, sure. have one more chance to hear a bit more of the book before we close for today. This is, as I said, even though she makes that decision, you don't control life. Different things happen. But then we do come towards the end of the book, and Cal is he he does get sick at the again at this point. I'm I'm hoping we'll have time for the whole uh, the whole quote. Uh, okay, let's give it a go. Cal <laughs> sleeps now through the days, through the nights. I sit close to his bed, but I need more to be able to touch him. But his arms and hands are tightly tucked beneath the sheets, so he won't disturb his oxygen tubes. I settle for his ankle. Cal turns and looks at me once. All he says is, "There you are." I know what he means. I answer always. I sit beside him into the night. He wakes again. He says my name. And then I love you. He couldn't have given me a better gift. We are going to have to stop it there, unfortunately. But I think that the point of that whole section is just that love does not go with the person. (laughs) That your mother loved him till she died. Yes, I would agree. And uh, I'm I'm putting in a vote for all of us continuing to love who we love, whether they're living or not living. <laughs> <laughs> Susan, thanks so much for for being with me and and um, sharing your mother's voice with us. Th- thank you for having me. It was a pleasure to talk with you. You too. Uh, to find the book and and more, go to Mary McCracken's uh, website, marymccracken.com. Next week, I'll have Michael Wall. We'll be talking about his book, Herschel's Wake, about an eccentric father and what happened after he died. This has been Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. I look forward to being with you again next week for another meaningful conversation. Thank you so much for joining us for Good Grief. Please come back next Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Cheryl Jones, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a meaningful week.